Good morning. Greetings in the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your truth and open our hearts and our minds with your wondrous love. Speak your word to us. Silence in us any voice but your own and be with us now as we turn our attention, our minds, and our hearts to you. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. And I am reading from the message. No sooner were these words out of Peter's mouth than the Holy Spirit came on the listeners. The believing Jews who had come with Peter couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that the Holy Spirit was poured out on outsider, non-Jews, but there it was. They heard them speaking in tongues and heard them praising God. Then Peter said, Do I hear any objection to baptizing these friends with water? They have received the Holy Spirit exactly as we did. And hearing no objections, he ordered them baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay on for a few days. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Many of you here know that I'm a foodie, a serious foodie. I would rather read a cookbook than a novel. So it's no surprise that I want to share a couple of food-centric stories with you this morning. Imagine how pumped I was when our preaching professor said that if you were going to preach to a congregation that you didn't know very well, that you hadn't had a chance to get to know the culture of, you didn't know who the power brokers were, his best advice, he said his number one pro master tip was to get the cookbook. And sure enough, every congregation has one. And Second Pres has a cookbook. It's from 1968, 53 years ago. I'm not going to get, use it to get to know you better, but I hope I've made good use of it this morning. I don't know why, but I turned to page 29 for no particular reason and found Mrs. Wirt Coleman's contribution of a recipe for chicken mushroom olive casserole. One of the ingredients is a pinch of curry powder. Now, some folks will tell you when you ask for someone for a recipe that they'll intentionally leave out an ingredient so that yours doesn't taste quite as good as theirs. I just don't think Mrs. Coleman was going to do that. I think she wanted your casserole to taste every bit as good as hers, maybe even better. Why would she withhold an ingredient as important as a pinch of curry powder? She was, after all, all about sharing the good news of the chicken mushroom olive casserole. Now, my second foodie story this morning is about crab fat. Yep, that's right, crab fat. Anthony Bourdain, the late celebrity chef, always highly recommended a restaurant in San Francisco called the Swan Oyster House. It was renowned for a number of dishes, but Bourdain insisted that it was the crab fat that made it worth the journey. A good friend of mine, a Presbyterian minister, as a matter of fact, was with a clergy group at a conference in San Francisco, and she decided she was not too eager to try the crab fat. But there was a foodie cleric among her group that decided to go to the Swan Oyster House. He read Bourdain's blog about the place, he bellied up to the bar, he ordered a dozen oysters and the crab fat. And the crab fat was amazing. A fellow sitting by himself further down the bar watched him delight in his food, and he was intrigued, and he asked the young minister, what are you eating? What's making you so happy? W would you mind sharing? Oh, he replied, 
I'm having the crab fat, and it is amazing. That guy sitting further down the bar called out to the waiter, I'll have what he's having. My friend was not about to withhold the good news about the crab fat. He had just enlarged the circle of folks who liked crab fat, and it pleased him that they would be enjoying it as much as he had enjoyed it. Before we make it to our story in chapter 10 today, we should reach back to chapter 1 for some context of how we land where we land. At the beginning of chapter 1, the disciples asked Jesus, again, if he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel to them. In other words, are you going to make Israel great again for us? Are you going to make for us a kingdom that we can call our own and we don't have to share? Christ's response is that you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said this, and as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Do we think that God has a plan here for how he's going to accomplish this spreading of his kingdom to all the corners of the world? Does God have a plan? God always has a plan. And God needs people to accomplish his plans. Not just any people. He has two of the least likely characters in mind to get his message across. He chooses, in this case, people who are as alike as chalk and cheese, mutt and Jeff, two peas from different pods, night and day different, I'm telling you, black and white different. God chooses Cornelius, a devout and God-fearing Gentile who resides in a house by the sea in Caesarea, a non-Jew. And while he is a godly man, he is a centurion in the Roman army. He commands a hundred Roman soldiers. He works for the oppressor of all oppressors. One afternoon, an angel appears to Cornelius, startled. Uh, who wouldn't be? It's an angel, after all. He asks the angel, sir, what do you want? The angel lets Cornelius know that Cornelius has come to God's attention because of his prayers and neighborly acts. God is watching him. Cornelius is given instructions to send to Joppa for a man named Simon, who people call Peter. As soon as the angel leaves, Cornelius gathers two servants, a devout soldier, gives them the instructions that he received from the angel, and they are to go to Joppa and bring back Peter. The next day around noon, Peter, God's other choice in this story, is at his friend Simon's house in Joppa, and he decides to go up on the roof for a nap. It's cooler on the roof. I've been to Joppa several times. It's hot there. He begins to get hungry, thinking about lunch, and he falls into a trance. The heavens open up, and a large white sheet descends to the ground. It's supported on the corners by ropes. Every type of animal and reptile and bird is on that sheet. And then God spoke. Get to it, Peter. Kill. Eat. No, Lord, Peter says. I have never tasted food that wasn't kosher. God says to Peter, if God says it's okay, it's okay, Peter. Peter says no to God three times, and then the sheet is pulled back up to the heavens. The men sent to bring Peter to Cornelius arrive in Joppa and knock on the door of the house. Peter's pretty shaken at this point, and he doesn't hear the knock, so he gets a very different kind of knock. Remember, God always has a backup plan for the plan. The Holy Spirit whispers in Peter's ear that the men have come looking for him, and he should go with them to Caesarea to Cornelius' house. Peter tells the men who have come that he is indeed the man that they're looking for, and he agrees to go with them. 
The men explain that there are people at Cornelius' house who want to hear what he has to say. I will tell you that it may not be but 70 miles from Joppa to Caesarea, but it would prove to be a very long and important journey for Peter and for God. We have a Roman centurion Gentile asking a devout Jewish follower of Jesus to come to his house. God has spoken to Cornelius and God has spoken to Peter. Both have done what God has asked them to do and both have answered a knock at the door. It must have taken every bit of courage that Peter possessed to cross Cornelius' threshold. He had never been inside the home of a non-Jew. He did not live near any non-Jews. He did not socialize with any non-Jews. He did not know any non-Jews. His whole life had been about not letting the outsider into his very Jewish world, non-Roman world. He had spent his years to this point in his life trying to keep the outsiders outside, never inviting them in. The Jewish world maintained its own identity that was very separate from the world of Rome, the oppressor state, the state that had kept its knee on the necks of Jews for a very long time, the state that Cornelius represented. Was it possible that what Peter had thought his whole life had been wrong? Was it possible that some sort of reconciliation could really be? Peter nervously enters Cornelius' house and sees a large group assembled there. They have been invited by Cornelius to hear what Peter has to say. Can you imagine how Peter must feel? He's probably picking at his beard and tugging at his sleeve. He's got to be nervous. His stomach's got to be in knots. All of this is probably true. But it's also true, as the scripture tells us, that Peter fairly exploded with the good news of Jesus Christ. He is on fire telling about how God shows no partiality. The kingdom of God is for everybody. He tells stories of Jesus' healing and miracles. And he's able to do all of this because God was with him. He is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with outsiders. He is not keeping it to himself. He is not leaving out any ingredients. He is leaving nothing out. He is about to get started with the kingdom work of spreading the gospel to the far corners of the earth. Right here, right now, right in Cornelius' living room, these people have kingdom desire, kingdom longing, and kingdom expectancy, and Peter is going to deliver it for God. As soon as he was finished speaking, the Holy Spirit came down on the non-believing outsiders. The people who had accompanied Peter from Joppa were blown away, but it was happening. The non-believers were praising God and speaking in tongues, Remember, friends, this is God's plan. And then Peter asks the big question, the question that God has already given Peter the answer to. Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in my way of thinking, the last line of this text may be the most important in the passage. And then they invited him to stay for several days. Peter our very Jewish Peter, who had never eaten anything that was not pure, was going to stay with his very Roman host. Peter, who had never tasted a morsel of food offered by a non-Jew. Peter, who had never been in a non-Jew's home. Peter, who had never touched a non-Jew. Peter was invited to break bread with and enjoy the hospitality of the other. And he accepted. Don't you love it when a plan comes together? God has a plan for us too. God has a plan for our church. God needs people, and he's chosen the people at Second Presbyterian to help do the kingdom work that needs doing. Sometimes we might wonder why God puts us on this council or this committee or asks us to work alongside this person, and we might say, what was he thinking? 
We need to let God be in charge. It's his plan. We will do the kingdom work that needs doing. Our faith in his plan will be an example to others. We will stand up and say what we believe. We will share the good stuff. It's God's plan. We will help spread the good news to all the corners of the earth. We at Second Pres will work to enlarge the circle of believers. We will reach out to the other and we will invite them in. We will be as brave as Cornelius and Peter. And like Peter, we can do this work because God is with us. Friends of Second Presbyterian Church, we are doing the kingdom work that God is asking us to do every day. As a Matthew 25 congregation and an earth care congregation, we are listening to God whispering in our ears every day. Our mission council is working tirelessly to change lives and change the status quo where it demands to be changed every day. To eliminate poverty and homelessness in our community every day. We are working to bring the outsider inside of the circle every day. Friends, I end this sermon with such optimism because I know that we as a congregation will continue to answer the knock at the door every day. And we will keep enlarging the circle of followers of Jesus by word and by example every day. It's God's plan after all. Amen.